0: Well, if you have a Bible with you this morning, turn with me to Psalm 133. Psalm 133, we're in a series in the Psalms of Ascents, a package of 15 psalms within the 150 psalms. We've been working our way through Psalm 120 to 134 for a while now, and today we're nearing the end as we come to the second from the last. Psalm 133, it's a short one. It's a song about the beauty and the basis of unity among God's people. Its opening line might be familiar to you even if you haven't really read the Bible much. How good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. That's something that I think much of the world can even agree with. Unity is a good thing. Unity, along with community and love and and peace, these are things that are almost universally appreciated. The examples are endless. We know the importance of unity in sports. It's called teamwork, they say. Pro-athletes often speak of the special camaraderie that takes place on a team when you're sharing blood, sweat, and tears Former athletes often speak of what they miss most when they were playing, and it's the locker room. It's the brotherhood. And yet, we have all seen sideline spats and dugout fits among teammates, against teammates that are the embodiment of disunity. Unity is... Universally appreciated, but it is hard to achieve, or at least hard to sustain. Fans of a certain sports team can enjoy a certain kind of unity. If you've ever been to a live professional sporting event or even a collegiate one, maybe you've been to the pit to watch the Lobos play and you Maybe you are a passionate fan, and you're seated around other passionate fans, and so you know that one amazing, timely play can make total strangers do things they would never do. Make eye contact, touch hands, or even jump up and down together. Identification with a team and living out the drama of the team's successes and failures, is a, it's a unifying thing. Cubs fans know that well this week. They're on cloud nine after winning the World Series in game seven on Wednesday. Right now, it is sweet to be a Cubs fan. There's no one to blame. There's no bad trade to to talk about. There's no unforced error that ended the season early again. You want to see real unity, look at Cubs fans, at least right now. (laughs) You better hurry up and look quickly, because it, it won't always be like that. It won't last forever, and it wasn't always the case. Of course, there's camaraderie in being what they called the lovable losers for 108 years. There is a camaraderie in commiserating the losses and curses, but some of those lovable losers were not always so lovable or loving. Just ask Steve Bartman, a Cubs fan who in 2003, at a playoff game from the front row, he reached out, from the stands for a foul ball, but accidentally interfered with the third baseman who was trying to make the out. Bartman was so hated and scorned that he has literally been in hiding since 2003. One fan paid over $1,000, $100,000 rather, to buy the Bartman ball so he could blow it up. (laughs) The lovable losers are sometimes nasty, and cruel, and they can turn on one of their own, and turn that one of their own into a scapegoat for all the frustrations of years of losing. Heck, an actual goat was for half a century one of their scapegoats. Now, I don't mean to pick on Cubs fans. I like the Cubs. I cheer for the Cubs. It's just that that presents... On the one hand, a happy, sweet, united feeling among Cubs fans right now. And a good contrast on the other side with those pockets of conflict and hate and blame that came before and will no doubt come again. Unity is universally appreciated, but it's seemingly impossible to achieve. Of course, talking about the unity and disunity within sports is right now a pleasant distraction from the disunity of our present political situation. Many have said that the U.S. hasn't been this divided since the Civil War. This election has been one of the nastiest we've ever had. Never have the accusations been weightier than in this election, and the greater problem is that never have the accusations been truer, for the most part. Never have Republicans been so divided among themselves as now, or Democrats more divided among themselves. It seems like a good way forward is almost impossible to imagine, let alone to navigate. It wasn't always the case for Americans. We had days of great unity. Think of the good and pleasant, happy unity that grew out of the days of winning the World War. The, the, the Second World War is what I have in mind, but I'm sure it's also true after World War I. And yet, if we keep backing up, the the needle just keeps bouncing back and forth between times of unity, then disunity, then unity, then disunity. Never was our country more divided than in that four-year civil war where over 600,000 died. Before that, we can think of the important unity in this land at the end of the American Revolution and at the birth of our country. And yet we know that our country was born out of conflict and division. Our desire for a more perfect union meant disavowing a union with Britain. How can we not think of the disunity or the even the violent tyranny of the white man's wars with Native Americans? How can we not think of the discord born out of Enslaving Africans and the cruelty of racial segregation and Jim Crow laws, which are still at least part of the racial tensions being played out today. And of course, most of us don't have to turn on the news or open a history book to know about conflict. It's in our homes, it's divided our families, sometimes it's in our churches even where there has been some modicum of peace, we wonder how much of it is just because we sweep things under the rug, we put up with it, we ignore it, we tolerate it and move on. So maybe we should lower our expectations about unity and community and peace and love. Maybe we should give up on the idea of anyone, anywhere, ever being unified with someone else At least for very long. Well, it's to this world. With all of its ups and downs. That God's word speaks today. In Psalm 133. It's to us. With all of our hopes for unity. And with all of our painful familiarity with disunity. That Psalm 133 comes to us like a bolt of lightning out of nowhere, like a refreshing breeze on our sin-scorched eyes and ears. So let's read it now and let's wonder, could this be? Is this possible? Is this for real? Is this for us? Is this for now? Psalm 133, a song of ascent, of David There are three parts to this short psalm. There's a statement in verse 1. There are two illustrations there in the middle. And then there's a reason at the end. So first, in verse 1, we could call it in praise of unity. In praise of unity. It's a statement of celebration about unity. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Now keep in mind the author here, this author, King David. We remember that he was not a man of Pollyanna optimism. He, he was not at all a guy who just luckily happened to have an unusually easy and peaceable life. And that's why he could talk about unity in such lofty terms. No, the man who wrote this, great celebration of unity, experienced an unusual amount of conflict in his life. He was the subject of a 10-year manhunt headed up by a man who was once like a father figure to him. At no fault of his own, King David became the dividing line for a whole nation, dividing even the king's palace. Those who were for David had to go about it secretly, Or join him as a nomad in caves. Even after King Saul's death. Not all the Israelites, far from it, united under David as their king. David was made king of Judah down in the south. But all the other northern tribes still sided with Saul's line and his family. For seven long years after Saul's death, David was king of a corner of the kingdom, rejected by the rest of his brothers, rejected by the rest of a nation that God said he was making and doing amazing things through. And then 2 Samuel 5, finally there, the northern elders come down And they receive David as their king. It's there that they willingly place themselves under his reign. And it's likely at this point that David wrote this psalm. You can hardly think of another time in David's life when he would be so moved by the the surprise and the refreshment. And finally the resolve that came in the brotherly unity of support under his kingship. The psalm, though, doesn't just bear the title of David. It's a psalm of ascent. Remember that psalms of ascents were a collection, a mini hymn book within the psalms to be sung together when Jews were returning to Jerusalem on pilgrimage for one of these three yearly feasts that God had prescribed for his people. The tribes came to Jerusalem From all different corners of Israel and beyond. The tribes, though all Jewish, though all from Father Abraham, were diverse. Some tribes were farmers. Some tribes were ranchers. Some were coastal fishermen. They had different accents among them. They dressed differently. There were the rural folk and then the city folk. But they were all God's people. And three times a year, they were all crammed together in Jerusalem for the same purpose, for God's worship, for remembrance of what God had done, and for sacrifice or atonement. Unity would be a challenge for them, despite their shared heritage, with all of their diversity, with all of the bustle, with all of the competing space. You can imagine unity being a struggle. And yet where it can be seen, you can imagine King David looking down from his palace window upon a city filled with outsiders, diverse in their language, in their clothes, in their styles, in their backgrounds and locations. And you can imagine David smiling and saying, Oh, behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. Because indeed, these are brothers from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they've come to Jerusalem because God said to. They've come to Jerusalem because they're God's people. They've come to Jerusalem for remembrance of what God had done. And they are united in these things, if nothing else. It is good And it is pleasant when brothers dwell together in unity. Good and pleasant. It's right and it's sweet. Think about it. Some things are pleasant, but they're not good. They're not right. Some things are good, but they're not pleasant. Cough syrup. When you have a a cold, That's, that's good, but it's not pleasant. But unity Among God's people, it is both good and pleasant. Think of the trek that these people would make to and from Jerusalem. Each family making its trek, likely with other families or extended family. We all know what trips are like. Road trips. Imagine road trips with extended family. You know what I'm getting at. Think of the need to sing this song on your way there as a reminder, as a correction at times. Hey, it is good and pleasant when brothers dwell together in unity. Hey, you two brothers, get down. It is good and pleasant when brothers dwell together in unity. Of course, sometimes it could be used as a rebuke, I suppose, but imagine those moments traveling along as a family. You got your problems, but you're going to your God. Think of those pockets on the trip of peace, joy, singing God's songs together, walking together to worship. You can imagine a mom or a dad taking in that delightful picture and saying, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. Jim and John don't dwell together in unity very often, but they did just right then. Oh, that's beautiful. David tells us to behold it, to behold the beauty of such unity. Check it out. Take a good look at this. Take this in. What a sight it is when we're one. Oh, I know that true unity is rare. It's hard. We might still need to figure out how to, how to get such unity. But David first wants us just to behold unity. He wants us to ponder the rightness and the beauty of it. Like those pilgrims of old, we Christians... Are the people of God. On our way to God, we're traveling to Him. We are inheritors of the promises, called to worship God above all else. We're on our way to God and we're almost there. Whatever else we don't have in common, we have the most important things in common God, the goal. The trek there, Christians are to willingly identify themselves with other Christians. Unlike saints of the Old Testament, our brotherhood in the church is not based on nationality or heritage. The New Testament picture is one that we're adopted. Adopted out of other families into a whole new family. We've been reborn into God's family and adopted by Him. No matter what physical family, heritage, or lineage we come from, we've been adopted. That adoption is not just linear, it's not just private and personal between us and God. But if He's adopted others as we know He has, then it puts us in the same family. We've got brothers, we've got sisters, it's horizontal. Christians in the New Testament willingly identify themselves not just with other Christians loosely and generally, but specifically in local churches. Churches are really nothing more than people, not a building. Yes, the Christian brotherhood is beyond just each local church. So, if I go to Guatemala and meet a brother in Christ there who goes to a different church than Desert Springs Church here in Albuquerque, we're family, but it's like we're extended family. It's like we're extended family. And then there's this other kind of family that I live with it's the local church, it's you, it's us. That's the day in, day out of the family. That's what we see most often in the New Testament when the word church is mentioned. Local churches. Each local church is to be a body. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, and Ephesians 4 all describe the church as a body. Having parts or members like an arm or an eye or an ear or a leg. Each with different functions but all attached together to be a body. A body. The body of Christ, then, is not a scattering of limbs in this world, which would be grotesque and useless. The body of Christ is not a box of arms who like to hang out together because they're arms and arms are cool. You can do a lot of stuff. Who needs feet? No. We're to be a body. Different parts doing the work together for the building up of the body into Christ. That's Ephesians 4. Or simply to use the language of our psalm, we're to dwell in unity. We're not to preserve unity by keeping our distance from each other. We're not to have unity Eh, just until you offend me, then I'm going to go try to do unity with someone else who's not quite as annoying. Not unity based simply on people who are just like me or people who naturally like me. I wonder if you've ever seen this kind of beauty up close. I wonder if you've been in a church long enough and stayed long enough to see the beauty Of unity here at Desert Springs Church our unity is far from perfect but I do believe it is real it is genuine it's God-given it's supernatural I know we can and we must grow in unity and selflessness and service and care for each other but we must praise God for what is there and what is not of our own doing We must praise God for what we've seen when saints care for each other. When people hang out with each other, not because they normally would, but because they share God in the gospel, and that's enough. We need to behold it. DSE, behold it with me. Behold the unity that God has given us I do not preach Psalm 133 this morning with a great deal of tension, wishing we could somehow ever exclaim, behold, how good and beautiful unity is. No, thankfully, we can exclaim it this morning. And yet, when unity is hard, and when unity feels threatened, we need to remind ourselves. We need to sing, behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell. Together in unity. Now, secondly, our psalm moves on to two pictures of unity. First, there's praise for unity, then, two pictures of unity. If you notice in your Bible there, verse 2 and verse 3 both begin with the phrase, it is like. Unity is like illustration, picture, metaphor, or I guess similes are what follow. Verse 2 it's like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard and the beard of Aaron, the high priest, running down to the collar or edges even of his robe. It's like verse 3, the dew of Hermon, the tallest mountain in Israel, that dew which falls on the mountains of Zion. Something these two pictures have in common is that they are top down. Notice the oil is running down, running down. The dew on top of tall Mount Hermon is falling down on lower Mount Zion. It's top down. I think that indicates that unity comes from God. We can cultivate it. We can protect it. We can maintain it. We also can mess it up, but we can't create it. Unity comes from God. And when unity comes from God, these two pictures tell us that then it's it's effusive, it's pervasive, it's not partial. It's all of Herman and all of Aaron. When unity comes from God, it's beautiful, it's aromatic, it's refreshing. And that's what the two pictures have in common, but they also have their own distinctiveness too. So this oil on Aaron in verse two—it's not like that illustration could be changed to just anything, anything that gets covered. This is Aaron, the high priest. It's not like he could have said, "It's like chocolate milk being poured over Bob's head, running down all over his clothes." It—that would. I suppose, communicate top-down and coveredness and all that. But Aaron, here is the high priest, and the oil poured on his head refers to his anointing as the priest. This happened back in Exodus, once in chapter 29 or 30 or so, and then again in chapter 40. Let me read from that second time Aaron was anointed, only because it's more descriptive. Here, God told Moses in Exodus 40, Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall wash them with water and put on Aaron the holy garments. And you shall anoint him and consecrate him that he may serve me as priest. You shall bring his sons also and put coats on them and anoint them as you anointed their father that they may serve me as priests and their anointing shall admit them ...to a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. This Moses did according to all that the Lord commanded him. A priesthood. The priest was the one who made sacrifices for the sins of the people. It was the high priest who brought atonement, covering for sins. It was the high priest who made intercessions in his prayers for the people... It was the high priest who symbolically would put his hand on the head of the goat, as it were, transferring the sins of the people to that goat. And he would send that goat on its way out of the camp and into the wilderness, as if the sins had been removed and they bared them no more. Well, what does any of that have to do with unity, you might wonder? Well, this, Aaron's anointing in his role as priest, That's the foundation for any unity that God's people have. There's no unity with each other, no matter where they go and what they do, if they don't have unity with God. If they are not reunited to their maker whom they've sinned against. Unity comes down from God. And it comes as a result of being made right with God. When we're right with God, we can begin to be right and stay right with those who are right with him. Aaron and his line of priests were a prototype or, or a foreshadow of what was needed and what God provided. You see, the priestly system showed God's people the problem of sin and death, and it pointed to the hope of guilt being removed by way of a substitute, a sacrifice. We deserve death. Death can be taken in our place. In Old Testament times, they could rightly look back to Aaron and his anointing and the current priesthood as a kind of gospel, a kind of gospel. It had a kind of gospel hope for them in their time, but we know only as it pointed ahead to the priest who would come once for all, a sacrifice himself. This is what Hebrews emphasizes more than any other New Testament book. Let me read from Hebrews. We should have this in mind as we consider the unity that is founded in the priesthood, as it talks about in Psalm 133, but we know we need a better priesthood than Aaron if this thing's going to stick. So in Hebrews 9, we Hear the contrast of the old, the priest, and the old. They they went regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, into that holy of holies. Not without taking blood, though, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, Then, through the greater and more perfect tent, one not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered that heavenly temple once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood of goats or calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. The next chapter goes on. Again, contrasting the old where every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, then he sat down at the right hand of God. He was finished. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now there's the real and full basis for true unity that Psalm 133 celebrates and and looks ahead to see. Here's how it's good and pleasant that God's people can dwell together in unity. It's in this priest specifically. It's in this sacrifice specifically. You want peace in this world You look to Christ. There's no shortcut. There's no alternative. When he was born, they said, he will be peace. Ephesians 2 says he himself is our peace. He's the means of our peace, the embodiment of our peace. He's the essence of our peace. He made peace for all who would ever believe. By dying in their place, paying for their sins, and being raised in the third day, he extends that mercy to all today who would believe, who would give up on all other forms of self-salvation or God ignoring and turn to him and receive the sacrifice that Jesus has made for the forgiveness of sins, which produces reconciliation with this God, To be right with him then means we can start to be right with others. Do you see now why unity is something that every human being, yes, does admire. We were made to go together. But why most of us can't achieve it. We can't keep it. It doesn't matter how great it is at the moment. It fades It's threatened, it teeters and totters. It's because the problem in this world is so severe that it took something this drastic, the Son of God nailed to a tree, bearing the wrath of God for sins, for us to have any hope of getting along. For us to have any hope of peace within our hearts. Peace with God, peace with one another. Listen to some other New Testament passages which help us understand this, which show us that Jesus died to not just save us, but to unite us. Like in Ephesians 2, he himself is our peace, who has made us both, Jew and Gentile, one, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. It's through him that we both, Jew and Gentile, have access to God in one spirit. So now, Jew and Gentile, it matters not. What matters is faith. And with faith, you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. In whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple of the Lord oh how frequent is the theme of God's unity with his people and among his people in the New Testament this is what Jesus prayed for in John 17 that his people would be one as he and his father are one just as they're one they're going to make us one one with each other and one with them it's unthinkable But it's true. So now if Psalm 133 could be rightly sung by Old Testament saints like like David and those pilgrims, how much more can it be sung by us? How much more true should it be for us since Christ has come? The priest has made atonement. The sacrifice has been made and it is finished. He prayed for us in John 17. He continues to pray for us and to pray for our unity. How much more can we say about unity? That it's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. Hermon was the tallest mountain in, Mount, uh, in Israel, some 7,000 feet above Mount Zion, where Jerusalem was. Mount Hermon was known for its dew in the dry non-raining months of ancient Israel, you can imagine, there'd be no life, there'd be no vegetation, there'd be no growth or fruit apart from morning dew. We've all seen dew in the morning, just like you might be tempted to wince at the idea of oil covering Aaron and his beard, thinking that's not so pleasant of a picture. You might think the same here about dew in the morning. Maybe you've been camping and your tent gets wet in the morning. Your sleeping bag gets cold. You're not supposed to think of it like you would, though, like they would back then. Think of these symbols in the most positive ways you can. So dew in the morning on Mount Hermon. Dew here is refreshing. It's cool when it's hot. It's wet. It's crisp there's a smell about it it's invigorating it's it's even life-giving there's no life without it on mount hermon mount hermon was known for its dew but mount zion at 2000 feet above sea level wasn't known for its dew and so the picture is given that all of the dew of Mount Hermon, which was snow capped much of the year, is miraculously falling down and covering Mount Zion, which is God's people and God's praise. This is what true unity is like. This is what it looks like. This is what it feels like. This is what it smells like to be united. It's refreshing, it's cool, it's crisp. It's invigorating. It is life-giving to be united to other redeemed sinners. Contrast all this with what conflict is like. Conflict. It's like metal on metal, sparks flying and heat rising. It's like nails on a chalkboard when you can't get along it's exhausting to be in conflict. It's wearisome. It's loud. It's obnoxious. It is chaotic. And this is much of the world around us. At times, even Christians can forget that they have been bought the privilege of peace. And they go back to their old ways and they get used to the world around them with all of its criticisms and hate and conflict and chaos. I wonder, have you gotten used to conflict and complaint and criticisms such that that's the air you breathe? And when you turn on the news or when you see certain shows, it feels like home to you. Christian, it must not. We've been bought so much more. And so thirdly, our psalm in the last sentence gives us the promise of unity. It told us to praise unity, gave us two pictures of unity, and then last, there's the promise of unity in the second half of verse 3. For there, the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. For there, where is there? Zion? It might be, that's what came right before the mountains of Zion. But there may not be talking about a place, but a thing, a reality. It might be what the psalm was about from the beginning to the end. There might be unity. There might be when brothers dwell together in unity. There the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. God has commanded, he's he's promised, he's decreed to save, to unite, and to give eternal life, life evermore. This is his plan. He will do it. He's commanded it to be so, which means obligation for us to pursue it, but it also means surety, a promise that he will give it. It is starting to be realized among pockets of Christians all over this world. This is one of them. And yet, it will only be fully realized in the new heaven, in the new earth, the true, eternal, or forever life. So we can say that unity, even now, even here, even though imperfect, is a foretaste of heaven. Uh, I know it hasn't yet saturated the mountain. It hasn't yet so covered us that we're just dripping in it. That's coming. But where we see little hints of it, we say that is from God. That's part of his plan. That's according to his promise. It's a foretaste of heaven. In the new heaven and the new earth, there'll be diversity and unity. Unity. We'll be united together in worship. We will share the most important things in common. And there'll be no tension or or, or rivalry or disagreement among us. So unity now, whenever we see it, it's just a glimpse of a great sunrise that's coming on the horizon. Unity is also an indication of our heavenly destination. You want to know if you're a Christian, not just in word, but in truth and reality, can you get along with other Christians? Do you keep proving that or keep proving otherwise? Ever been long enough at a place, a church, where you can say, these people, with me together, we keep proving this thing's real? We're not in it just for X, Y, or Z like the world is. This isn't gospel plus where we have gospel and sports in common and that's who we like at church. But this other guy, no, he's annoying. We have nothing in common. I like him. We have the blood of Christ in common. I step on his toes sometimes. I've been rude to him before. He really gets under my skin. But I love this guy. Because Jesus bought him with his blood. He's been adopted into the family just like me. He got in the same way I got in. Not because we deserved it or because we were likable. Because he redeemed us. We must know where true unity is found and we must note where it is not found. According to the Bible, true unity is never going to be achieved through sports, through a political party, through a candidate, or by a wall. Unity is not kept even by a nation or a flag. Nations and flags have come and gone. Only Christ. We'll live on. We should celebrate unity when it's found, even when it's imperfect. Let us be relatively optimistic about what's there rather than pessimistic. Let's let's not emphasize the flaws in each other. Let's not emphasize the gaps between fullest possible unity and still genuine supernatural unity. Which means some of us in this room need to lower your expectations about your community group. You think that you can reach heaven with your community group and you won't. It's not yet. Rejoice where unity and love and community is real. Pursue more. Maybe you need to pursue unity this morning by beginning to consider joining a local church. Our membership class right now is going on in Wednesday evenings we're sort of in the middle of it thus far but but come February we'll do another membership class again and I'd encourage you get in a church if not this one another gospel preaching church where other brothers and sisters can say I know that guy saved I walk with him I talk with him we rub together sometimes there's conflict but there's peace Join a church. Maybe consider getting in one of our community groups if you're not in one of them. It's hard to, to think that you have unity simply by being in a room of several hundred once a week and knowing maybe one or two. And yet, while we're in this room together, let's sing. One of the ways we pursue unity is by singing together, sing truth. Week in, week out, keep coming. We pursue unity by pursuing God and his worship. If you can't tell right now, I'm wrapping this up by giving us some practical applications for Psalm 133. How do, how do we pursue unity? Psalm 133 doesn't tell us, but things like singing together and pursuing God together, singing and worshiping him together is one of the ways we pursue unity We actually pursue unity not by making an obsession of unity. It is possible to hijack unity because you've made an idol of unity. Unity is not our only goal, God is our goal together, and that makes unity. So we cannot choose unity at the expense of truth, we cannot choose unity at the expense of holiness. Unity is not the trump card that gets us out of so many other parts of the Bible. We can't pursue unity at the expense of the mission. You know, a year and a half ago or so, it would have been been easy for us as a church to say, we're not going to do a church plant. That's hard. People I love, people I get along with most might go to another church. We want unity. We have unity. We must protect unity. No, no, no. Don't go. But there's the mission, right? Unity doesn't trump mission. Unity serves mission. So let's remember what's at stake. Jesus said the world will know that we're Christians by our love. Will the world actually see we're different? Will they actually know us to be peacemakers or troublemakers? If they... If they had a conflict in their marriage, would they think to go to you? Parents, teach peace to your kids. Require peace among their siblings. Require it. Yes, I said it. Discipline when it doesn't happen. Pray that it would. Preach to them that it could. Model for your kids. Parents, in your marriage... What it looks like for two redeemed sinners to be unified, to pursue peace, to get along. Let's protect what God's given us. Let's be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. If our brother sins against us, let's go to him. As much as it depends on us, let's be at peace with all. Let us seek peace and pursue it let's not divide over music styles or paint colors on the building let's not divide over different views of end times let's not divide over politics let's certainly not divide over different ages different colors of skin different levels of income different tastes and preferences No, in fact, as we unite, despite these things, we might actually send a a strong message to the world that this actually is a pocket of heaven. An imperfect, yes, pocket of heaven. But one that is God-given out of this world. Unusual. Well, let's pray for God's help. Lord, we have much to pray for. We have much to give thanks to you for. We thank you and praise you for where brothers and sisters in this church dwell together in unity. And yet we boldly, because you've promised to give us more, we pray for more. Give us more. Make us more one. Lord, you have made us one. The blood of Jesus bought us this. So now, Lord, increase it. Make us tender for each other. Help us to be willing to confront. Help us, Lord, to not be easily offended. Unite us in truth. Unite us around the gospel. Unite us in your worship. May this be what we have in common most and above all. For this is what we will have in a new heaven and a new earth. We will sing of a lamb whose blood bought men and women from every nation and tongue and kind and people to be a people for himself. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your blood and for your great glorious plan to save and to unite. Help us now as we sing and continue in prayer, Lord. Help us to sing and really mean that you would make us one. Amen.